part about Drake Davis, too. See, Orgeron may have been told not to uh, do that because a major uh, millionaire booster in Louisiana named, in Baton Rouge named Jim Bernhardt of a, you know, a um, chemical company in, in Baton Rouge, he basically adopted Drake Davis at, when Drake was in junior high. He was a poor kid, and he was friends with Mr. Bernhard, Bernhardt's kid. So it's it's very possible that Bernhardt said, hey, give this kid another chance, you know, a third chance, a fourth chance. So it's, that's a, that's a scenario that's not a reach. Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, we've got a little little early pod for the people this week. Scheduling conflict, so good news. Pod comes out a full day earlier than normal. I think people like when stuff comes out early, right? Like, what's what's the best earlier than expected feeling? Because I think it's when you are trying to get into a restaurant and you're told it's going to be an hour wait, and then you get that text, you get that buzz. I, I don't know if they still do the little thing anymore that lights up and tells you your table's ready. COVID times, it's weird. But when that thing goes off like 10 to 15 minutes in, and you're like, oh, it's on now. It doesn't even matter if it's IHOP. That gets me fired up every single time. What What's something else that you would hope is early? Bro, you just made me realize, I think those might be going the way of Blockbuster, man. Because even pre-COVID, mm. they would send you text messages. And I just realized how much how much I miss those little pucks from like Applebee's, you know? Right? Uh, Fuddruckers used to always have them <laughs> back in the day. Fuddruckers would let you know your table's ready. Like, who's... What, why, why is the line so massive to get into Fuddruckers? I have no idea, but um, yeah, we're not going to talk about those today. Uh, we're instead going to talk about ESPN FPI today. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to talk about that either. Mississippi State coming in at number eight in the ESPN FPI is pretty much all you need to know about the legitimacy of that, in my opinion. And that's coming from someone who actually likes MSU, think that they're going to have the year two bump. But no, I refuse to fall for the trap and talk about FPI just because I know that's what ESPN wants me to. Right. I... I, however, I love a good cliche storyline this time of year. Spring is such a great place for that for a couple of reasons. One is that everyone is undefeated, and two is that everyone is undefeated. That's it. That's the only reason. But I wanted to talk about the best cliche storylines in the SEC this spring. I've got a bunch of different categories for that because... Well, I mean, there's just no shortage of them. And I, whenever I see one of these headlines, I'm like, you know, I've been long overdue to do something about just cliche spring storylines. There's only so much you can talk about when there's not games going on. So because we have, count them, one, two, three, four, five, six, we got seven spring games this Saturday. I thought I would do my seven favorite spring storyline cliches. So let's fire it up. One, number one, and this is obvious, and this is just universal in the SEC. The new coach with the new culture. Any of the SEC's four new coaches can claim this. you got Clark Lee at Vandy, Josh Heupel at Tennessee, Brian Harson at Auburn, Shane Beamer at South Carolina. Google each one of their names with the word culture after it. All of them get so many results. I, I love it. And look, like I think winning culture is a real thing. It's not all just random. The Mark Stoopses of the world, Tom Allen, you know, these these people that just kind of ooze that and they rebuild these programs who have historically struggled. I get it. It's We use that oftentimes for the bottom feeder programs who improve. 
just don't play that drinking game when it comes to new coaches because you're going to hear the word culture so, so much. Clark Lee is establishing culture at Vandy by doing what? By taking away names and numbers. Those oh, jerseys, yeah. They're blank. I love that. That's a big time establish the culture move. Why is he doing it? Because you got to earn everything at Vandy. You know, you got it's all about the culture. Listen, you got to earn every one of those zero wins, all right? Hey, I mean, all SEC schedule, deck was stacked against them. They're going to get some on the board this year. I have confidence in that. But I always, I think that's like, if you were to take away the names and numbers of your players and you're a new coach, first of all, you're way better with names than I am. That's like being the um, night one of The Bachelor when you show up and there's 25 women there and you forget I don't know how they, they can remember all those names. I don't know how they could. I think Jesse Palmer You said he's taking him. away names and numbers? Taking away names and numbers. They just have blank choices. <laughs> all right, man. More power to you. They got to tear it all the way down. I mean, do what you got to do. Start from the ground up. Build that foundation up. Sam Pittman was all about that this time last year. Do what you got to do. But, man, it, it is like the you, – if you were a head coach trying to pick a, a guy out of a group – you're like sitting there trying to like just learn names the entire time, learn body shapes or something. I don't know how that really goes into establishing the culture for you from a personal standpoint, but hey, do what you gotta do. If it works, it works. By the way, I love that change the culture sort of implies that the previous culture sucked and that's why a change was needed. It's like kind of low key shade at the previous regime. Not really because it's, it's a different type of cliche, but like it's basically saying, oh, your last coach, he lost the team, but I'm going to be the one who found who finds it. For Brian Harson and basically every coach ever, that change the culture cliche, it starts in the weight room. Of course, he said that's where they've really been getting after it. Every coach comes in and thinks that their strength program is the difference. I remember at Nebraska, Scott Frost's weight room, like his, his weight room program that he had designed after Mike Riley, that was going to be the difference that was going to make that program elite after being bad. Like it's still 1975 and nobody else has figured out that lifting weights don't actually stunt your growth. By the way, that's at the root of why Nebraska stormed past everyone. Well, on the whole like steroids thing, they turned a blind eye to discipline. Um, Tom Osborne wasn't big on that. But yes, Winning culture is everything. And if you're not bought into the winning culture, you can find the door. Number two, the new offense. Oh, this one is this one is so cliched now. I mean, every year. And we heard about it Georgia last year, of course, with Todd Munkin. I remember 2018 South Carolina, Tom Luganville, who does awesome work for ESPN. It's the day before their spring game that he was covering. And we've brought this up before, but Brian McClendon comes in and Luganville all of a sudden gets everyone buzzing because he likened South Carolina's offense with Jake Bentley to old school Oregon. Uh, that one, I'm, I'm just going to say right then and there, we pretty much knew that wasn't gonna really pan out that way that offense did improve though they improved by like six points a game i went back and i looked up the numbers did not however crack the top 50 just a shade off of old school oregon we've we've also seen the flip side of that though 2019 lsu is the most obvious example that offense looked really really good in the spring game it looked difference and everyone in camp you know you got joe burrow coming out saying how much more explosive the offense is and you start hearing the name joe brady a bit more and i was i was sipping the kool-aid as well and then it turned out to be way more spot on than anyone could have imagined and in the process of being spot on i'd like to think that it gave the whole new offense cliche like 20 years of life 
after that. Everybody's going to be able to point back to that and say, oh, hey, you know, it might be 2019 LSU, even though that's not going to happen. Well, dude, the best part of that, too, is there's almost no difference in the offseason before 2019 and the offseason before 2017 with Danny Etling and Matt Canada. Because everybody that's was lit point. about Matt Canada. They were ready to go, and boy, did they go not forward. Matt Canada's going to run some motions. He's going to have the entire defense is going to be in a tizzy. They're going to be trying to do substitutions. They're going to be a mess. Wait until Matt Canada takes over with his offense. Yeah, it goes every way. It goes every way. And it's probably going to go every way this year as well. Who has the new offense this year? Um, all the teams with new coaches, obviously, new offenses that come in. Some of those are more drastic than others. Like Tennessee is really drastic. The predictable Jim Chaney offense... Going from that to this high-powered Josh Heupel offense, very, very different. Those receivers have to be in heaven. Like, oh, wait, you mean we're actually going to get to run routes downfield and catch passes more than 15 yards out? Like, that's that sounds awesome. Jimmy Callaway, got to keep your eye on. He fits the Heupel receiver mold a ton. He's a lot like what they had at UCF last year with Marlon Williams, Jalen Robinson. Callaway has this blazing speed, former high school quarterback, Keep, keep your eye on him. Kentucky, also drastic, drastic offensive change, of course. Shout out to the doppelganger, Liam Cohen. Gone is Eddie Grand's offense. They ran the ball basically like two-thirds of the time. They're going to be much more balanced. They're still going to run the ball. Don't get it twisted. They want to run the ball out with C-Rod. Cohen says he wants to get him 25 touches a game, yada, yada, yada. I believe that. But the plan is to be able to stretch the field a lot more. I already talked about the Bo Allen angle of this. He fits the scheme best. They've had a lot of turnover at wide receiver via the transfer portal. They got this big 6'6 kid from Michigan State, Trayvon Morgan. That kid is just a skyscraper. He is exactly what they need in that offense to be able to go up and get some of these jump balls. Obviously, Wondell Robinson, huge, huge piece of that, fitting that Robert Woods mold in Liam Cohn's offense. Going from Kentucky's offense to basically like these Sean McVay principles, I'm not saying that, that Kentucky is going to be high-powered from the jump, but it's just going to look way, way different. And it makes for a really good off-season storyline. Alabama is kind of the exception to the rule with this. It's a weird spot for Bill O'Brien to be in because basically for the first time in a decade, and everybody's been hearing and talking about Bill O'Brien, of course, but basically for the first time in a decade, he has to adjust to someone else's offense. Like, think about it. Everywhere he's gone, it's like, Hey, I'm Bill O'Brien. This is the offense that we're going to run. Like Penn State, he does that. With the Texans, he does that. He didn't have to do that with the Patriots. They had a well-established offense. They had this guy by the name of Tom Brady. You might have heard of him. By the time he finally takes over that offense, they pretty much know what they're doing. So basically, for the first time since then, he's having to go to the beat of somebody else's drum. When you go to Bama, you don't bring in your new offense. You adapt to Bama's offense, and you make your slight tweaks. Steve Sarkeesian did that to a T. It was perfect. They love the short crossing routes. They love the fact that they have these guys that would just buy into the system and block for each other downfield. That's like the most underrated thing about watching this Alabama offense is how willing those guys were to block downfield. And obviously they of course stretch the field, they go deep. They started running more of these two tight end sets late in the season. Billingsley, I love saying Billingsley. They're going to do that again with Bill O'Brien. That's the big storyline. Billingsley and then the converted linebacker Cameron Latu. I think it's Latu? Latu? Sorry, I'm mispronouncing his name. If he becomes a household name, I'll learn how to pronounce it. They are both getting rave reviews out of camp. Expect to see a lot of those two tight end sets with Bill O'Brien's offense. Speaking of the position switch, guys, which Cameron Latu is, that's the next one. 
The position switch guys. These guys are these are always great in my opinion. Tennessee used to do this all the time with Pruitt. Like Pruitt would just move linebackers to running back sort of interchangeably. I think looking back now, Pruitt would just forget kind of how that worked and what the offensive side of the ball is supposed to look like and he would just think that everything is supposed to be defense. I don't know. Maybe that's a little bit of an unfair dig at Pruitt, but I don't really think he knows what offense is still to this day. Like, hey, we have nobody here at this position. Help us out. Last year, Dakarian Joyner moved full-time to receiver. By the way, Dakarian Joyner, that kid is awesome. South Carolina. Imagine sitting back and watching the quarterback situation unfold at South Carolina. All the different dudes that started at that program, Colin Hill and Holinsky and Bentley and Doty at the very end there. Like, you're a former four-star quarterback and you just have to sit there and watch all these guys play. Meanwhile, they're telling you, you're going to play another position. You're going to be great here. Not only did he stay at South Carolina, but he put his head down and he worked. He says and does all the right things. He could have left that program easily, probably started a group of five somewhere. But he really needed, he's a guy that really needed that full offseason last year. Didn't get it. He admitted that it kind of sucked that he didn't really get it. Didn't get the volume that he was hoping to. Now he's getting it. I really hope that Marcus Satterfield, their new offensive coordinator, utilizes him way, way more than Mike Bobo did. I think they're going to have to without Shai Smith. This year, though, J.J. Pegues. Yeah! Oh, boy. Will, this, this guy is built out of a lab for you. Damn, boy, he thick! We're just gonna have to get that that clip as like a voiceover to throw in anytime you forget <laughs> it to make sure that we always we never we can never bypass that, of course. If you don't know who JJ Pegues is by just me saying that, you know him by the fact that he was the guy who would 6'3, 308 pounds. He played Wildcat quarterback last year. That spin and hurdle that he had against Arkansas, it is the ultimate chef's kiss. I don't care if you're on the Arkansas sideline, you can't not watch that and appreciate that athleticism at that size. But he was a tight end who basically played on special teams. And he only had like 71 scrimmage yards. But Will, I tweeted this out the other day, all-time great snap count that J.J. Pegues had as a true freshman last year. This is via Pro Football Focus. He had seven snaps at quarterback, eight in the backfield, 117 in line, which is, you know, typical for a tight end, but then 29 in the slot, 22 out wide. Imagine seeing that guy split out wide and you're cornerback and you're like, wait, I don't actually have to guard the 308-pound guy, right? Um, 20 on kick coverage. He did 53 snaps on kick return. Five on punt coverage, 48 field goal extra point. Pegues was one of those guys that the second he stepped on the field, no matter who you were, you, you knew who he was. But now he is moving to defensive tackle. I asked Kiffin about him last year before Ole Miss played Auburn because Pegues is from Oxford. And um, he actually went to the same high school as DK Metcalf, but just missed being able to, to play with him. He was in eighth grade when Metcalf was a senior, so they just missed that. Um, but Kiffin was like, yeah, freak athlete, really sucked that I couldn't even get a seat at the table to be able to recruit him. I guess it came along too late. Um, but Kiffin's like, yeah, I saw him lay out some dude on kickoff coverage. And oh, by the way, Pegues would probably be a top five pick if he played three technique. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, what? top five pick if he played three technique. You don't say that about everybody, but that's just how dominant of an athlete and how how strong he is at that size. So what did Brian Harson do? He came in and he moved in the three technique. Probably seems like a smart move. And for what it's worth, Pegues was totally on board with that. 
He wanted to be recruited as a tight end in high school. That's where his dad played at Arkansas State. Everyone wants to be able to have the ball in their hands. And if I was 300 pounds and I could move and do the things that he did, I'd be like, yeah, play me there. I want to have the ball in my hands. This is awesome. But now he's down for the switch to defensive tackle. He's going to be able to play a lot more snaps. But of course, you know, we're coming back to the cliches here. Why did he want to make this move? Why was he willing to? Because he wants to help the team win. Love it. Number four, the stud freshman recruit back from injury. It seems like just yesterday's Amir White was that dude. I, I, I tr- like this is a cliche. We joke about this stuff. I think that that would suck to get hurt as a true freshman. It would really, really suck. It always sucks to get hurt. But as a true freshman, I would say that like getting into the strength program and doing all of that year one, of course, that matters. That, that is important. And when you're a blue chip recruit, early enrollee, as so many of these guys are, you still need that time. My two favorites for this category this year, Georgia cornerback Kaylee Ringo and then South Carolina running back Marshawn Lloyd. Lloyd was going to be the guy last year at South Carolina. Like They were saying, true freshman, you will start day one. That does not always happen, but the Marcus Lattimore tweets, they, they were in the drafts for South Carolina fans. They were oh, no. ready to go. Oh, yeah. And then, of course, he goes down in fall camp, torn ACL. But then Kevin Harris happened, and Kevin Harris was awesome last year. Now Marshawn Lloyd is back, or at least he's working his way back. We're not going to see him in the spring game, but he should be full go by this summer. We still, we see all the cliche things when it comes to that rehab with Lloyd. We've got the social media workout videos of his rehab, and it's like, oh, man, he's looking awesome. He's looking stronger than ever. We've got coaches raving about his progress. We've got his backfield mate, Kevin Harris, hyping him up. The best thing about South Carolina in 2021 and why they're going to be worth watching for not just South Carolina fans, but for some others when you're you know looking for something on that noon SEC Network game that you know is going to come on, it's going to be Kevin Harris, it's going to be Marshawn Lloyd. That would also be a great injury law firm. Thought about that as well. Like, I was facing third and 28. Then Harrison Lloyd stepped in and got me the 75-yard touchdown I needed. Thanks, Harrison Lloyd. Kaylee Ringo, on the other hand. I know, that's, that's a bit ridiculous. Elite Sorry. dad Get joke back game. On track. <laughs> bad dad joke game. Bad, bad. Kaylee Ringo, on the other hand, Georgia needs him back badly. Badly. They lost five defensive, back, defensive backs, all of whom could be drafted either this year or next. I know the dogs just got West Virginia defensive back Tyke Smith. Still, though, that's a huge reason why Georgia is sitting there. Bill Connolly's ranking of returning defensive production. They're 126 out of 127. Not great. Ringo, of course, came in as the five-star cornerback, but then he tears his labrum before the start of last season. Still a work in progress based on some of the comments we've seen out of camp, but the kid is 6'2". He runs the 100 in 10-4-3. That is really, really quick. Kirby seems like he wants to lower expectations with him. He doesn't He's not going to look like Tyson Campbell or Eric Stokes, Stokes out of the gate. That's just unrealistic. Not everyone is able to step in and do Derek Stingley things, playing lockdown corner in the SEC. Stingley isn't cliche at all, but we've got more cliches. Number five. I'd say real quick, hold on. My favorite of that last one is the guy who is an insane recruit that's been like okay every year, but every mm. offseason, like my favorite of this was Deshaun Hand. He was like the best recruit of his class, um, I think back in 2014, and every year it was like, oh, when they unlock this guy at Bama, it's going to be over with. And like a version of that right now is uh, John Emery at LSU. Every offseason is like, oh, this yeah. guy was a five-star recruit. Is this the year he finally shows it? It's like, buddy, maybe not. 
And if you go off in the bowl game, and I used to say that about George Pickens. George Pickens has just gone off in the bowl game yep. of his first two years. That sets the stage. You're like, okay, we've seen what this looks like. He's figuring it all out. You point to some of this stuff at the end and might be like, oh, no, he actually just had a good game, and he's still going to be super inconsistent, and he's probably going to frustrate you a lot and just show those flashes and not be a key consistent guy for you. Number five. The quarterback battles, this is a two-part. We've got the quarterback battles or the new quarterback is becoming a leader. I already did the quarterback battles last week. We don't need to get into that. There's three true kind of up in the air, all over the place battles. Not going to get into that again, um, but it had to be listed here, of course. The other one, the new quarterback is becoming a leader cliche. That one never fails. Search any new starting quarterback. A lot of our tier two guys, a lot of our tier two guys, if you recall from last week's pod. Search that new starting quarterback, their name with the word leader attached to it. It's essentially like the equivalent of uh, new coaches with culture. KJ Jefferson has been a repeat offender of this. He's stepping into a leadership role. He's becoming more vocal. But he's not a rah-rah guy, and he likes to let his work do the talking. Oh, you no. know you've seen those quotes. You've seen them. They're everywhere. And look, I get it. You're not going to say a bad thing about the new incoming quarterback. A lot of these guys, you know, Emory Jones and Haynes King, you're not going to see these guys thrown under the bus by their coaches. They're trying to build them up a little bit. A lot of the times, I think they're just trying to get these guys confident knowing what it's like to be the guy and to just get them that sense of confidence early on because they're going to have plenty of opportunity for other people to kind of break them down and to get them to that point where they understand how to take criticism. But they're on the rise. They're next in command, hence the Tier 2. Um, but there's another thing about the Tier 2 guys like Jefferson. You're not going to see a player come out and say anything but those things about them. And it's kind of weird, though, if they, if, they, if they were to come out and say that, and if you had a quarterback who's considered the next in command, and if they weren't getting those type of comments, that's when I'd be worried. It's almost like the pre-draft thing about your quarterback not being a captain. Shout out to uh, Connor Cook and Zach Wilson, apparently not a captain at BYU. I don't know what you have to do. I always, whenever I hear that story about not being a captain at BYU, I'm like, does, does that entail like some other stuff? Like, do you have to be 26 years old to be a captain at BYU? And that's just why Zach Wilson never got to be it's it. It's got to be a, but whatever the case. It's got to be bike miles, total bike miles road. Wait, explain that. Because, <laughs> like, you know, the Mormons, they just go door to door knocking on people's doors. So if you get on your bike and you visit like 30 people at BYU, you're the captain. <laughs> oh, okay. Hello. All right. Oh, that makes that makes a little bit more sense. You got you got to go on the trip first, and you know that's that's just the way that they do things at BYU. It's a little bit different, but okay. All right. That's that's cleared up. Appreciate that. Um, number six, we've got. Will, this is one right up your alley. I know you're gonna like this one. The guys adding slash losing weight. I I love the. This guy has lost X amount of weight since the season ending. Or on the flip side, this guy has already added 15 pounds of muscle. Coaches, for whatever reason, love to bring that up. And I think that it shows that their guys are motivated during those months where they don't have like the, you know, the official workouts because winning culture, of course, that's what it all comes back to. Some of the some of the weight gain guys so far that I've seen, and I'm definitely leaving some out, so I apologize if I haven't got 
every single um, weight gain processed in the SEC so far. I'm sure there'll be a lot more of those. Caleb Johnson, Auburn defensive end. He put on 28 pounds since last year. Zacavius Walker, Auburn defensive tackle. He put on 23. Jay Hardy, another Auburn defensive tackle. He put on 18 pounds. Wow, Auburn defensive line. They're all about the culture, apparently. They're getting there. intimidated by uh, the geese coming in. They are. They definitely are. I, JJ Pegues is going to be like, he's going to look around and be like, oh, wait, I don't need to gain any weight. I'm good. I'm, I'm already at that size. I'm, I'm good. Christopher Smith, Georgia's safety. He's up 10 pounds. He wants to put on 10 more. Isaiah Nichols, another guy, defensive tackle at Arkansas. He's up 10 pounds. He wants to put on 10 more. You also see the weight loss guys. And it's, I don't want to, I don't want to pigeonhole or say that it's one specific group of people, but I feel like it's always just the defensive tackles who have to get down that weight. Remember Tyler Shelvin last year? Well, basically every year. Will, what did you? What do you always tell me about the Tyler Shelvin diet? Oh man, Coach O told us Tyler Shelvin's mom feed him all gumbo, no rice. <laughs> He's a big Atkins diet guy. I've been trying to figure out since that moment how that worked, and I still don't get it. <laughs> weight fluctuated a lot. And, you know, Tyler Shelvin's going to make some money in the NFL. So, like, he, he did what he needed to do to be able to, to, to kind of control it. But he got on campus and he lost 60 pounds. So, apparently, there's something to just... I, how much rice was he eating? Goodness gracious. Um, but he loses 60 pounds and he gets down to 325. And then the following spring, he's back up to 358. But according to Ed Ogeron, it's a slim 358. So, take that for what you will. Those tackles, their weight fluctuates so much. I already talked about Desmond Watson, the 432-pound true freshman at Florida. He's going to get the same sort of treatment throughout his time. It's always going to be a question about his weight. How much has he gained? How much has he lost? You get the occasional situation like Kentucky where Marquand McCall, he needed to lose some, he needed to lose some LBs, I think. Um, he was replacing Quentin Bohanna. And Kentucky was basically asked about, well, how much weight has he lost, blah, blah, blah. And Kentucky's like, ah, we're not going to answer that. But they did do the thing where they say he looks better than ever. Oh, That's yeah. a cliche thing. That's a big-time cliche thing where they don't want to come out and say it if he's only lost like three pounds. It's a bad look. That's like, wait, why doesn't he have to lose 20 if he's only lost three? Well, he looks better than ever. That's all that matters. Body positive. Pos Body positive. Hey, we're not we're not here to, to shame or anything like that. Play at the size you need to play at. Some some guys need to play at that 380. That's just what's going to have to happen. Um, position switch guys are also big weight change guys. Note that as well. They got to slim down or they got to bulk up. I remember um, back in my Nebraska days, I was talking to a Division One recruit and I was asking him what position he was going to play. He was going to a Mac school. So it's FBS, it's D1. And he goes, yeah, they want me to eat my way to three technique before I get there. And this dude was already like 270, 280. So he still needed another 30 pounds to be able to line up on the inside and actually be able to play D1 football. And he said he was basically just like housing a couple of frozen pizzas and working out a ton. Oh, like, man. what a life that is. That would I mean, be that, music. That is unreal. That would be music to my Cajun mama's ears, Connor. If Coach O came in and say, hey, look here. Look here, Ms. Ogman. We got to get 50 pounds on your son. She'd be like, say less. Uh, can you imagine that, though? Like, your entire life, you've probably been told, man, you're too big. You know, you, you need to be able to, like, watch your weight. And instead, someone comes in and says, nope. We need you to put on that weight. Like if someone told me I had to gain 20 pounds, but like not necessarily totally eating clean, it's steak, Chick-fil-A, Hawaiian rolls, and chocolate milk for days. Like 
that is probably all I'm consuming nonstop. I don't think I'd ever be able to do the Candler Cook diet. Shout out to our guy Candler. Um, that dude was doing 15,000 calories a day at one point. 15,000 calories. He would down two gallons of whole milk a day. I, I never actually drink whole milk. Yeah, whatever, skim milk is water, say what you want. Everybody drinks what they grew up on, let's move past that. But I did just buy this, this like jug of promised land chocolate milk because I heard that it's basically like melted chocolate ice cream. They were not lying. If you're a chocolate milk fan like I am, oh my gosh, get your hands on some of this. It is unbelievable. It is so rich. I drink it like it's whiskey or something. I pour it into a glass. I can't have like a full glass of it, but I'm like, just, just give me a little bit. All right, never mind. Back on track. Back on track. Cliches. Real quick, my, my <laughs> best, my, <laughs> this man. Anyway, best weight gain, weight loss guy in history, Mo Bamba for the Orlando Magic. Every Ooh. single time this man gets hurt, the offseason goes by, there's any updates, like, don't worry, he's gained 15 pounds. Every time it's like, bro, this guy gained 15 pounds every time y'all said he gained 15 pounds, he'd be 400 pounds. He'd be dead. I don't want to hear any more 15 pounds in the Mobomb. <laughs> At one point, if you had been tracking LeBron James's weight gain with muscle, he was well over three bills based on the reports of, oh, yeah, I added 10 pounds of muscle this offseason. I added 10 pounds this offseason. It's like, are we really doing this? Can we have somebody that actually is willing to track some of this stuff? Because I'm too lazy and we need to keep these people on their toes just to say, oh, really? Would you be confident like stepping on a scale right now and saying that? I just want to know. All right, last one here. And this is a 2021 special. The normal offseason huge narrative, cliche, storyline, whatever you want to call it. And for what it's worth, I actually think this matters, but every coach is bringing up how guys are benefiting, benefiting from having a normal offseason. They get an actual spring. Look, last year sucked. It, it had to suck, especially for those true freshmen where you get to campus two months later, your workouts are shut down. I already brought up the, the point about the strength program and how important that is. This is cliche for the spring though, but come fall, Read about every single breakout player and it's going to have some sort of part in that story about having a normal offseason and how that changed them. And honestly, like, look, they're probably not wrong. If you actually got to have a normal offseason where you get to learn the full playbook, you get to actually go to the facility and eat like a normal college kid. Yeah, that probably would matter. But it is still cliche. I've already caught myself saying it a million times the last few months. I'm probably going to say it it's a million more times, but it's a 2021 cliche. It's not necessarily an annual cliche. We have to squeeze all the life out of it that we have for this one offseason. So that is a wrap on spring cliches. Will, did I? I'm sure I did. Did I miss any? No, I think I think that's about it. My favorite one for sure, I think, is the leadership guys, because I think at the end of the day, some people, most people are who they are, you know. And I love the thing about bringing guys to media days or whatever in previous years, um, and oh, just kind of kind of trying to fit a square pig in a round hole, you know, for what it's worth. It's like this is the year that Garantano takes that step. Probably not. You know it. <laughs> Probably not. Um, all right, I, I a couple that come to mind here, just as I was doing this, and I was thinking of, of more as we were going. The new defensive scheme, big one. Who could forget about the legendary, legendary Bo Pelini? <laughs> I already knew where this was going. <laughs> oh, man. The 4-3, it's going to revolutionize everything. LSU's defensive line, it's built for that. They're going to be good. Hey, look, just because it's cliche doesn't mean I don't fall into the trap. We all fall into the trap. 
It's there. Oh, I Just didn't fall into that trap. That was like telling me you invaded the bicycle in an age of cars. A lot of bicycle references today. A lot of bicycle references. I, I didn't do, also, there's another one. Um, this is not quite the freshman coming off of a of, of an injury, big time recruit, former big time recruit, but this is the um, incoming freshman who's turning heads. Mm-hmm. That's another one. Uh, Ja'Cory Brooks at Alabama, receiver, five-star guy. Kind of seems to fit that mold. I'm sure we're going to be hearing a lot more about him. He's going to make one of those like jump ball catches in the spring game on Saturday, and everybody's going to be like, oh my gosh, this kid is unbelievable. Um, although a lot of the time the turning heads guys is usually just kind of like a workout guy. We'll see how that translates during the year. Um, also, probably should have done the the transfer who's fitting right in. Yep. It's not as... Not quite as popular in the spring. I think we get that more in the fall. A lot of these guys, they now they want to be able to finish out the semester and then come in as grad transfers. That way they don't have to deal with the NCAA. Will they play? Will, will they not play? But when that rule gets changed, that's going to be super, super popular where all these guys are there for spring ball. And it's about, oh, are they adapting? Or they came in with the right mindset. Love to see that. Love to see like guy from way out in the middle of nowhere, like Jeremiah Masoli, my favorite one of those overs. Like, what is this guy doing at Ole Miss, bro? Like, <laughs> like he's just here because they want him here. Don't be telling me he's out here, you know, uh, you know, with a pop collar and some Sperry's. That's not him. I'm I'm here for all of it though. The cliches. We need the cliches. This is an eight month off season, and if we don't have these type of cliches to look forward to. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? We, we have nothing to be able to, to spin the calendar when people say, what do you write about in the offseason? <laughs> you kidding me? I got a million things to write about. I got all these cliches. We got all these angles. Don't tempt him it, with a good time. He will write about it. <laughs> it never stops. It never stops. Today's podcast is brought to you by the Saturday Football Newsletter ad. I've brought it up a million times before. If you're not subscribed to the Saturday Football Newsletter, what are you doing? All you got to do. You go into your browser, you type in saturday.football, you put in your email address, and all you're going to get from that point forward is the best and most important headlines in college sports, mainly college football, but we got college basketball stuff as well. The transfer portal in college basketball is bananas right now. Adam Spencer is all over that. We have so much great content right now on SDS, and it's not just the SDS stuff that we link to. There's other stuff, other commentary, stuff that Adam likes to be able to kind of offer up some opinions on as well. Saturday Football Newsletter is so, so good. I cannot recommend it enough. If you are not subscribed to it, you absolutely should be. All you got to do once again go to your browser type saturday.football that's it you don't need a .com you don't need anything it doesn't cost you anything if you don't like it you can unsubscribe at any time but i promise you i promise you you will love the saturday football newsletter so go do that right just now let's go to my interview with usa today louisiana's glenn gilbo uh, i wanted to talk about this entire title nine protocol handling mess at lsu and I wanted to be able to talk about it with someone who has done some boots on the ground reporting there. And Glenn has just done such a great, great job with that. So here is Glenn Gilbo. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Glenn Gilbo. Glenn crushes the LSU beat for USA Today, Louisiana. Uh, it's hard to know, Glenn, where to start with this whole mess at LSU because it's not just an Ed Ogeron thing, and it's not just a Les Miles thing, it's an LSU thing. Systemic failures to follow Title IX protocols are a 
big, big deal, especially when it's the massive public state school. I want to start with something that's, it's going to sound pretty open-ended when I ask this and feel free to take this wherever you want. But how did we get to this point where now we have LSU officials along with Ed Ogeron sending letters to the state, to the Senate Select Committee on Women and Children instead of appearing in court and testifying, and now the U.S. Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights is launching its own investigation of LSU's handling of Title IX protocols. So yeah, how did, how did we get to, to this point? Well, I'll say this. Uh, USA Today did a series of articles about uh, sexual accusations like rape and assault against Darius Geis and Drake Davis from August on. And uh, then LSU hired a firm, Hush Blackwell, out of Kansas City to kind of investigate their school. Hush Blackwell finished that and held a press conference on March 5th and detailed a lot of uh, what what had happened at LSU, a lot of it was alarming. A lot of it wasn't in the USA Today stories, but it, it, a lot of it proved the USA Today stories correct or more correct or beyond the shadow of a doubt correct. And, uh, and then they didn't fire anybody, okay? They, they said all the bad things that Marion Seeger and Verge Osbury let go in their jobs as associate athletic directors kind of looked the other way, and then they said, they, they should be suspended, okay? And that, that upset people. And then you saw Les Miles get fired at Kansas, and you saw the former president of LSU, uh, F. King Alexander, get fired at Oregon. And so the people at LSU, including LSU fans, you know, and people in Baton Rouge and Louisiana, like, well, why isn't LSU doing anything? Why aren't they firing anybody? And so then this committee was formed at the state legislature, um, a select Senate committee with senators and state representatives on it. Uh, and they decided they were going to investigate and held some hearings. And this committee obviously wants people fired at LSU. Yeah. And and they invited um, people involved at LSU, like Ed Orgeron, Virgil Osbury, Miriam Seeger, athletic director, board of supervisors, members to come and testify. You know, they could have subpoenaed them, but they tried to be professional and forthright and ask them to come. And they, and as I wrote the other day, their mistake was thinking that LSU was going to be forthright, and they decided not to show. Uh, you want me to keep going? I'm not quite finished the answer. <laughs> no, I mean, that's, that's a fascinating thing to have happened because you basically had a higher power say, you as an institution failed to do your job. And if LSU had exactly. come out and, and if they had just come out and punished and said, instead of a suspension for 30 days, no, you're fired. And instead you have these, these people, F. King Alexander, Les Miles, people at other places who have gone on to do other things had their bosses look at them and say, no, 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 we, we can't stand for this. Meanwhile, back where the problem originated, it still doesn't feel like they're addressing the problem in the right way. And there are so many little little pieces of this that I feel bad saying using the word little because they're not and they're significant and they've added up to this point that we're at. And one of those things and the thing that, that has made so many headlines is the Darius Guy situation with 
you had the 74-year-old woman accusing him of sexual harassment at the Superdome. And it might not be seen as this end-all be-all because, again, we're talking about very serious matters at LSU that are that are even, you know, physical violence is well on, on top of that in, in other areas. But, you know, to me, it reflects a bigger problem with Coach, with Ed Ogeron. And LSU might have been able to muddy the waters a bit by showing that there was this extortion attempt by a man who represented the woman, which if Geis... I guess if he had a totally clean pass, I would at least kind of understand why that would be seen as like an out in this specific instance for LSU. But Geist didn't have this totally clean pass. And you had a guy who was accused of two totally separate rapes and then also taking nude photos of a woman without her consent. And Ed Odron didn't discipline him or think to himself, maybe I should look into this more. Call me crazy, Glenn, but that that is just such an awful look for Ed Odron, muddied waters or not. And it's an even more awful look for the other people at the athletic department like Burgos, Barry, and Miriam Seeger because they knew more right. about Darius Geist than Coach Orgeron did. Uh, Coach Orgeron maybe should have known more, but uh, he wasn't as closely involved as Osbury and Seeger, LSU police. You know, it's systemic uh, throughout the campus. And, you know, LSU is very underhanded in, in – in, exposing this woman who was uh, harassed by guys at the football game at the, at the playoff game at the Superdome in 2017, you know, they, they, they released all these recordings they had, which makes you think, what else does LSU have that they've mm-hmm. recorded, you know, that maybe they're not putting out there. That just looked, that looked pretty slimy on LSU's part. I mean, it's not that surprising that a, that a woman, um, would would try to get some money from LSU, you know, you considering uh, you know, her job and and a lot of her family was trying to to get her to do that, and it's also according to um, experts on um, sexual harassment at uh, large companies and so forth. Often the victim, you know, tries to get some money, and then it's handled outside court, and and the uh, the company uh, gladly rewards money. I mean, that's kind of what Harvey Weinstein did. Um, so that, you know, so LSU trying to, uh, an LSU fan saying, oh, this, this woman was trying to extort LSU. You know, that, that's just such a small part of what LSU is, is guilty of. And it's, it's kind of despicable that LSU people would kind of cling to that. And it's also the least of the things Darius Geis did. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he, he used terrible language and and harass this woman, but he's before that, you know, he's accused of rape by two women uh, when he was a freshman in 2016, <clears throat> when when Les Miles was the head coach. Uh, so you know, Geis was at LSU for three years before Orgeron was the was the head coach, um, but but still, he he knew of some of what uh, Geis was doing. <clears throat> but uh, you know, the um, the bottom line is as you touched on a minute ago, had Hush, had LSU fired Osbury and Seeger when the Hush Blackwell report came out on March 5th or soon after, they would not have the issues they're having now. And I asked that question at the press conference after the Hush Blackwell's report. I asked the Hush Blackwell lead investigator, Mark Schmidt, I said, you spelled out all these things that, that these people did, and then you're just suspending Osbury and Seeger? And he said, well, I don't believe in sacrificial lambs. 
Well, let me tell you something. LSU needs about six or seven sacrificial lanes to, to make people feel like they're doing something, like they care. Because the way it looks now, and perception's everything, it looks like they're just not doing anything. They had this big press conference, and they thought it was all going to go away. Well, this Senate Select Committee is saying, no, it's not going away. The discipline is the biggest issue, and the way that it's been addressed by LSU is troubling um, because I, I do think that from a perception standpoint, they would have dodged so many of these issues that have really been brought upon themselves because of the way that they have gone about this almost I, I, I hate to use the word arrogance but that's what it feels like at this point and, oh it's and, definitely you know, arrogant it's it's I mean, definitely arrogant and it's it's arrogance that's going on for so long that they really don't know it's arrogance anymore because they're exactly. so used to doing it. and and you see they think they were working in in like their own backyard you know which they've done before and kind of got away with it but, you know, the fact that they didn't fire anybody and then Les Miles and Alexander got fired, this committee got involved, then the U.S. Department of Education, they've launched two suits against LSU for uh, improper handling of this. And that could lead to LSU not getting a lot of its federal funding, you know. So this, this all goes back to systemic arrogance by LSU and just a way of doing things, automatically trying to cover up things, and just operating in a, in a fishbowl that they don't think anybody's looking at, watching. Well, this time, you know, the world was watching, and, and they didn't really realize it. And, and I still don't think they realized it. You know, if so, they would have sent some people to the hearing on Thursday. If Odron, if, if there's a suspension for Geis in the Citrus Bowl, which is a non-New Year's Six Bowl game, if they had just decided we're, we're going to suspend him, we're going to use this as an excuse just so that nobody comes back to us and, say, and can say that we never disciplined this kid, it almost feels like the conversation around him changes a little bit and at least they have that to fall back on. Is that a weird thing to think about? Because again, I'm not trying to dismiss the serious nature of being accused of rape two different times before that. That is way, way more serious than than sexual harassment claims, obviously. But doesn't it kind of feel like LSU was basically given an opportunity there to do something that, that seemed obvious, but they instead decided that they didn't even need to do that? Well, that would have definitely helped Orgeron. And you know what? There is a chance that Orgeron did not know about the two rapes accusations by guys in 2016 he was he was an assistant coach at the time that's plausible because um the the, uh you know it's not like all the coaches and the people in the football office knew all of this this was Miriam Seeger in the athletic department the uh the title nine office the LSU police um some members of the athletic department like Virg Osbury um you know there's a chance he didn't he didn't know all about that and he did kick Drake Davis off the team finally who who also had some sexual assault he did kick him off the team because he he was arrested so that was kind of public but yeah if uh you know and Geis was also he played in that last bowl game he he was kind of hurt when he played in that game and uh you know and it was just a a meaningless uh bowl game 
you know, it was not a BCS game. And that's the other thing. Most of the time, Geis was at LSU. He wasn't even the best running back. Leonard Fournette was. Um, so, and Drake Davis didn't even play at all, hardly. You know, so it, it makes you wonder, you know, why are you why are you doing this to kids that really aren't even that valuable to you? Not not that you know you should change your um, your your stance on that just because the kid's good, but it, it's just like you know they they do it because they can't is is the feeling I get. You know, like here's a guy you could kick off the team much earlier, Drake Davis. Here's another guy that that you, you knew about and you should have handled better. Darius guys, but why didn't you do it? I think it, it comes back to, well, you know, we're used to doing it and we can do it because we control everything in this town. With Drake Davis, that's the part that, that you could say that that's, even though that he eventually got kicked off the team, that's the part where you really see how high up this failure goes, where Osbury was made aware of of all the claims against him and there were I mean it took seven different officials at LSU having knowledge that he was beating his girlfriend for him to 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 even get to that point and Odron didn't want to even address that issue when he was asked about it like after getting after kicking him off the team and he didn't want to say whether or not he had prior knowledge of this because obviously that would imply that he was guilty of knowing more and doing and not doing anything about it except for suspending him from the weight room that summer and the way that that all played out but let's go back to when all of this kind of hit the masses because I think we we all see the initial report that comes out from your colleagues well, at USA Today me, uh... who did tremendous work yeah, go ahead. Let me let me interrupt you too. The, the, the part about Drake Davis too. See, Orgeron may have been told not to uh, do that because a major uh, millionaire booster in Louisiana named in Baton Rouge named Jim Bernhardt of a you know a um, chemical company in in Baton Rouge. He basically adopted Drake Davis when Drake was in junior high. He was a poor kid, and he was friends with Mr. Bernhardt's kid. So it's it's very possible that Bernhardt said, hey, give this kid another chance, you know, a third chance, a fourth chance. So that's a, that's a scenario that's not a reach. Um, and, it, and it just goes to uh, the, the uh, systemic issue of this there's so many people involved you know and and I, I think a kid like Drake Davis had he not had this tie with this rich LSU backer uh, probably would have been kicked off the team uh, sooner I mean this That's is like an interesting a wrinkle thing. you know and it's that it, there's so it's it's incestuous and people at LSU have been there so long and they take care of themselves like the mafia the way that you phrase it like that it certainly it definitely paints that picture to now seeing what has come out when it initially came out in november i think everybody was was caught off guard a little bit and we thought this was just an isolated incident with with darius geis and some of the things he was being accused of and then all of a sudden you find out this is this is way beyond just one individual in the lives that he impacted. When this came out in November, I remember that Ed Odron has his a media, he has a media availability 
shortly thereafter and he reads a statement and he says that he's not going to address any issues. He doesn't want it to be open season. He, open season. He doesn't want to be on his heels. And you were the person who asked the only question about the investigation that USA Today had uncovered. What was your reaction then to seeing the way that he that he responded to you to that discussion versus where he's at right now? Well, that that didn't surprise me. I mean, that's that's what coaches tend to do uh, when something happens like this, even on a smaller, less systemic scale. Uh, you know, once once there's a, an arrest and 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 lawyers are involved, the uh, the coaches usually um, try to stay out of it. Um, so that that didn't surprise me that much. I mean, it surprised me that I was the only one asking about it. Uh, that surprised me. There, there, have, there are several other reporters that are asking more and more about it um, since. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think um, Coach O's, uh has probably been asked not to speak about it much, I would say, because Coach O tends to be very candid and speak his mind. So it's obvious he, I, I feel like he's been told not to uh, answer certain questions. The $50 million lawsuit filed by Sharon Lewis, who, if you don't know, if you haven't kept up to date on all of this, she was the LSU Associate Director of Recruiting. Um, it piggybacks on some of the findings of the Taylor Porter investigation eight years ago, and then much more recently, the Hush Blackwell investigation. The the Verge-Osbury role in, in, in all of this, combined with, again, not reporting the Drake Davis stuff, it, it just kind of shows the systemic failure that we've been talking about. and. Um, I saw F. King Alexander, who, as we mentioned, you know, was 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 fired, relieved of his duties at Oregon State. He said that Osbury got a promotion and his salary was doubled during this, which is just a wild thing to think about. That people above him knew what he had contributed to in all of this, and that he was still getting promoted and it's it's shades of urban meyer with zach smith with some of the like just blatant negligence in saying i'm just going to continue to promote and do what i feel is right not based on anything else that has happened outside of this can you sort of explain why his role in all of this is important in understanding kind of the bigger picture issue at lsu well i would say and you know again this is my opinion and a, and a guess um Miriam Seeger and Verge Osbury are, are both former athletes at LSU, uh, and they've both never really worked anywhere else but LSU, and they've, and they've been in various uh, areas of LSU that makes them extremely knowledgeable of how things go on at LSU since the 1980s uh, and, and 90s. Um, and Verge, in particular, worked at the Tiger Athletic Foundation, which is the uh, fundraising arm for athletics. Um, so I'm thinking uh, LSU might be nervous about firing Seagar and Osbury because of what they may say to the media or uh, the U.S. Department of Education or a Senate committee uh, if they're fired, you know. Um, of course, they could also give them a nice 
settlement, if you're, they're already giving them a huge, giving Verge a huge raise, they could give them a nice retirement uh, settlement with a catch that says, you know, you can't say anything. Um, but again, you know, LSU's, uh, you know, they they're loyal and uh, you know they, to each other, not to anyone else outside of LSU, but but they're loyal to uh, to each other and they're they're trying to stick together through this. And uh, you know, I don't I don't think it's going to work. It's it's definitely not not working. You you can't keep everybody on board for for so long. And you know, it also makes you think. I, I mean, they could have fired less miles too, um, but they chose not not to do that. Uh, that was a little more understandable than than keeping Osbury and and Seeger, because uh, um, and and because Miles is. Um, the allegations against Miles are obviously not as serious as those, even close to as serious as those against Drake Davis and Darius Geis. The Miles non-firing with Joe Oliva, where he just basically gets trucked by the LSU administration, and the email records show that, show that he was not given the time of day. This, The way that you talk about keeping this in-house it feels like LSU is is worried about and has feared this day for a while, wherein someone from the outside could come in and shake up this this dynamic, and it's hard to see where this is going or how this doesn't end with significant changes in the higher ups, at least long overdue significant changes. It feels weird to ask you this, but what's next in this whole process? Because you know, a lot of things, they're happening at the same time, and it's now, at least it appears to be out of the hands of the law firms, and it's much, much higher up the food chain. Odron wanted to make it seem like he'd send this letter with knowledge of what happened with Darius Geis, and then he'd be done with it, but that's obviously not the case. What's the next step that we're waiting on here? Is it is it pretty much what the federal investigation finds? Well, I think it was naive of, of LSU's lawyer Winston DeCure to to think that all these people sending letters was going to suffice uh, with the committee. And also, it should be noted, you know, the LSU lawyer pinned the LSU people not appearing before the committee on the Sharon Lewis lawsuit, which news of that broke last Tuesday. Well, Orgeron, Osbury, Seeger, and LSU Athletic Director Scott Woodward, they had already said they weren't going to the hearing before the Sharon Lewis lawsuit came out. So that illustrates to you that, you know, they just think they're untouchable. They didn't have to go to this uh, committee hearing. And uh, that was that was a big mistake. Um, I, I think what's next is um, I've already had people tell me on record that uh, on the committee that they're considering subpoena subpoenas for all the LSU officials. And I've talked to the LSU attorney, Winston DeCure, and he said, you know, if that happens, then, you know, that it's going to be tough because of the Sharon Lewis lawsuit and because LSU people are involved in both. But they're going to have to they're going to have to appear, you know, and, and they'll, there'll be some questions they won't answer. But that's what they could have done had they gone last Thursday. You know, they could have done that already and it would have showed them to be more cooperative. But they totally missed that. And, you know, LSU is just begging for a a uh, damage control person who knows what he's doing and they seem to never have had that they used to have one in herb benson who's at the sec office for several years and i'm sure he's thinking god he's not at lsu anymore um 
but uh, you know they they just don't have the uh, the the damage control skills for that. And uh, the, uh, the the next thing to answer your question, I, I think, will be subpoenas and them appearing before that. And then, um, you know, worst case scenario, they could they could lose some federal funding. I hate that I have to even ask this because this whole logic is at the root of this entire problem. But in your opinion, does Ed Odron have a job right now? If 2019 had just been like kind of your typical run-of-the-mill LSU season in the 21st century, where it's nine to ten wins, or do you think he still would have been able to su- to survive that without winning a national championship? I, I think he he would still be surviving that. Um, I do because I, I still believe Ed was was a little out of the fray as far as what what's been going on. Uh, at LSU with, with Davis and Geis because he didn't recruit or sign either of them. He kind of got into that in the middle after that had been entrenched. And he also got into it after LSU's way of skirting the Title IX has been going on long before he, he came to LSU. Uh, whereas, you know, you, that can't be said of, of a lot of the other people at LSU. And then the other problem I meant to say, too, so, so I think Orgeron is safe, even if he had not won the national championship. Um, the thing is, if he does have a bad or average season, you know, all this goes into his file, so they could fire him maybe quicker than they could have in the past, and they could probably, you know, not have to pay him as big a buyout. But I don't think that's going to happen. He's still going to be pretty good on the field. Um, but the other problem is LSU doesn't have a president right now. They have an interim president. And you know what interims do? They're just trying to get the job. So they're not behaving as they would if they had the job. So they just, they're just without a leader right now. They need a president to come in and roll some heads is what they need to do and, and really just kind of start over. But, but that's not what they're doing. They're, they're kind of just circling the wagons, you know, and, and that's just not the good strategy. So it does come back to football then. Ironically enough, uh, with with all of this, with with Ed Odron, it does seem like he's going to get that opportunity to move past all of this, which, you know, I think there are a lot of people, even who bleed purple and gold, who would say that that's a, that's a really tough look for the university to sell if everything with his future at the school is dependent on how he's able to bounce back in 2021. I know LSU fans feel incredibly conflicted during this time because the the school has provided them with so much joy and 2019 was something that I don't know, personally I'll never forget it and getting to go to a few of those games was incredible. But then I think there are people who have also looked at the other side of this and said, well, at what cost were you know certain players able to, to kind of get by? And some of that was before 2019, obviously. And then there are players that were still on that team that were being accused of this. So yeah. just kind of, is, is that, I mean, how should my last, I guess my last question is, how, how should LSU fans feel right now about, about their program and about you know just their university moving forward? Well, I'll say this. If there was none of these sexual assault cases and none of these investigations, Coach O, if he has a bad to average season in 2021, he would be in trouble, okay? Because that would be on top of the 5-5 five and five season he just had, okay? 
So even without all this, if he goes eight and five this coming season, he'd be kind of on the hot seat going into 2022. All right. Um, but, and again, I, I think he's kind of away from this. I, I wrote that he should have been, he should have been suspended and Osbury and Seeger should have been fired. And the tennis coaches who, who didn't really take care of their athlete who was being assaulted by Drake Davis, I thought they should have been fired too. They, they didn't even get suspended. Um, but I think outside of Coach O, I think LSU fans should be, and I think a lot of them are, uh, just ashamed and embarrassed about how things are run systemically at LSU throughout the campus. Okay, not just the football uh, program, but the athletic department and its its tentacles th- through the Title IX office and the LSU police department. That's just something to really be embarrassed about and, and needs change. Glenn, this has been great. Um, I know this is pretty heavy stuff to be able to dissect, and it's not exactly... You know, it's not exactly what you are usually writing about uh, this time of year, but um, you, you've been just so great in providing so much coverage. Everyone go follow Glenn on Twitter. It's at LSU Beat Tweet. Read all the coverage that he has. Uh, USA Today Network is doing such a great job with all this. Continuing story, not going away any, anytime soon. So, uh, Glenn, thanks, man. We'll talk soon. Well, let me let me say that uh, Nancy Armour and... and uh, uh, Jacoby at, at USA Today, at, at Big USA Today, I call it. I mean, those are some of the most excellent investigative uh, reporters um, I've seen work. And the amazing thing about this story, usually when there's a big story, the story's updated and kind of rehashed. Not this story. Every story is a new one. It just keeps on being peeled. You know, that, that's what's amazing about the development of this story. Each story is different than the other one, and they're all involved in the same potato that's being peeled, if you will. So it's, it's not a great subject, but the reporting, particularly by Nancy Armour and Jacoby, just been uh, excellent. Thank you. Really, really good stuff. Yeah, no, I, we're, we're going to have to maybe – Maybe during the season we'll talk about some actual some actual football stuff because I know we didn't have time for that today. But uh, yeah, I mean the stuff is is tremendous. So um, yeah, I'm sure we'll be we'll be we'll be talking soon. And like I said, everybody go follow at LSU Beat Tweets and uh, just stay informed on all this stuff because it's important. All right, thank you. Will you don't have any tattoos, do you? Not currently, no. Do you have any plans to get a tattoo? Yeah, so it's funny because my girl has been putting off getting a tattoo of her dog's paw print, and she actually just passed away. And then me and John, um, my business partner, have also wanted tattoos for a long time. So I think over this next, or in this next couple months, as things start to get back to normal, I think we're just going to take a group field trip and uh, I'll get tatted, man. Got to be a sober decision. If you're going to do it for the first time, it has to be a sober decision, I would think at least. I like that, though. Then it's kind of a group thing and... You know, if if it's people that you've been friends with for a while or, you know, people that you have had, you know, a good relationship with a long time, it's something that you feel like, all right, this is this is something that we could talk about for years to come. I, I like doing it as like more of a group thing than just kind of an individual. I haven't pulled the trigger on a tattoo, but 
I've thought a lot more about them recently, and it's I'm not at midlife crisis age yet, so I think I'm st- I'm still good for a little bit. Maybe we'll get to that in a second. Man, um, I thought but, we were about to have a moment. I thought you were about to rip your shirt up. No, the full KD going on. <laughs> Business tats. No, we don't we don't have any of those yet. Not not just yet. I grew up, and I'm sure a lot of people relating to this or listening to this can relate to this. I grew up in a household where my dad hated tattoos. We would turn on the NBA and remember, like I grew up Bulls, Rob Manera, and every single time I would watch an NBA game with my dad, pretty much without fail, that was an automatic comment about all the tattoos. And I think if he were alive today, I think he'd have a little bit more of a different approach now because I think they're a lot more main, mainstream. I think you see a lot more regular everyday people that just, they, they aren't necessarily affiliated with drugs or something like that or into heavy metal or whatever the case. Like my best buddy Bronson is a good example of this. He sent me a text out of the blue a few months ago and it's like a four by four inch tattoo of a wagon wheel on his leg, <laughs> like on his thigh, where you know pretty much most pairs of shorts would probably cover it up, but you could probably see it pe- peeking out a little bit. A lot of people wear the, the shorts above the knee nowadays. That's a little bit more, a little bit more on trend. But anyways, um, it, it's not a wagon wheel for the song uh, either version of it, so don't worry about it. People who hate the Darius Rucker version, it's a wheel because he grew up in Wheeling, Illinois, and oh, you know, uh, that. That's got sentimental value to him. I didn't get it right away, but when he explained it, it's like, okay, that makes sense. It's where you spent so much of your life. And he wants to get one to two more. And he said, it's sort of now or never. And it's interesting because, you know, we're the same age. But I feel like now that I'll be 31 soon, I'm sort of also nearing the now or never phase. Like, if I'm 10 years older, it's definitely a midlife crisis. There's no two ways about it. You can't be on the wrong side of 40 and then get your first tattoo and not have people say it's a midlife crisis. Like, I saw this one guy who, he did not have any tattoos. Not have any tattoos. And then he goes out and he gets a massive one on his left arm. Like, elbow into forearm. The type of tattoo that you can't help but notice immediately. And it... It took me totally by surprise because he's got two young kids and this tattoo is just out there. You see it clear as day with a short sleeve shirt. You can't really, it's not business tats. But I wonder what the conversation was like when he went to his kids like next play date or when he picked his kid up from school and, and like one of the parents or like the teacher or something like that, they look at him and they're like, oh, so what did you do this past weekend, guy? Like we can, we can clearly see. Location for tattoos, I think that matters. The more visible you make it, obviously, the more you want to talk about it. This guy wanted to talk about it. He wanted to be able to talk about this tattoo. You don't get it in that area without wanting to talk about it. Or maybe you just get really drunk and you didn't really think that part through. I read this thing, like, probably Saturday or Sunday, about celebrities and their tattoo regrets. And a lot of them were what you would expect. Tattoo, significant other, they break up. Never ever do that. I, I don't even, I'm not even crazy about the idea for doing that for married couples because then what if you get divorced and that's just another thing you gotta worry about. I, I wouldn't necessarily wanna do that. I think my, life, my, my wife and I will spend forever together, no doubt about it, but still that would kind of worry me throughout the entire process. Or some people try and do the artsy thing where they would do it in another language and then they would do the wrong word. Oh boy. I don't, I don't know how, like, 
I get it, celebs, they got the money, they don't really have to think the same sort of way, but I just don't get how people can misspell a tattoo. Like, I get the tattoo artists, they're not sitting there spell checking them, it's not like they, they come up to them and they say, oh, let me look up this word to make sure you're 100% correct. But how do you not Google this stuff before you go in and get permanent ink on yours? I just, I just, I don't get that. But Lauren really wants me to get one on my ribs. And I am, I don't look the part. I don't think I have that type of pain tolerance either. But, you know, I've, I've at least been curious about tattoos. And I, I wonder if my ship has sailed a little bit. 2016, 2017 would have been my range for that. The Cubs finally win a World Series. My dad died at the end of 2017. And I was still kind of like a few years away from 30. Where if you turn 30 and then you get one immediately after, it's like, all right, that's kind of a little, not quite midlife crisis, but eh, what are you doing there? Um, nothing ever really stood out for me though. That's why I didn't get one. I feel like the Bible verse, I, I totally get why people get Bible verse tattoos or you know whatever uh, faith background you have, something that's important to you, understand it. I want my tattoo, if I get one, to be totally original. I don't want to ever be in that position where I get a tattoo and then I'm in a spot where I see someone walking down the street and I'm like, oh, wait a minute, you also have John 316 on your shoulder? Cool, man. Tattoo bros. Uh, that's just me. And if you have a tattoo that's you know a bit more cliche, if you got the barbed wire, whatever, that's your thing, totally fine. So, Will, any thoughts on that before we get to a few of the, these uh, responses that we've got? You gotta you gotta take your buddy's like path with a wheel and just get a husk of corn on your ribs for Nebraska. No, he's, he's from <laughs> Illinois. No, but you Illinois. no, but you he spent went... time in Nebraska, so that would be your version yeah. of that: a husk of corn and then Kanye West face on the other rib. Oh gosh. That's <laughs> okay, so my 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 buddy is actually he was big into the Kanye transitioning into the auto tune phase. Okay, like I have distinct memories of two thousand eight where he would just listen to that CD on repeat. And all, we're all kind of looking around at each other like, you actually like this? You're the one person. You're the one person that liked that 2008 version of Kanye. So that that would kind of work. Wait, are you talking 808s and Heartbreak or Graduation? Because those are two very different no, 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 no. We're not talking Graduation. We're talking 808s and Heartbreak. Yeah, that guy was going through it. You should have just given him a hug. <laughs> looking back on it looking back on it now I, yes he, he needed a hug it, you know what Kanye was able to kind of move past that good for him we have a few responses here uh, Emery Picker said that he has 10 tattoos and that he was actually going to get another one today um, King amazing one on each calf apparently or, I, I don't know Emery doesn't look like one of those guys who has like too many tattoos as well. Like I had, I had breakfast with with Emery, um, Emery and his wife and, and and his friends last year. They were they were down in my neck of the woods in Orlando, and I did not look at Emery and immediately be like, oh, you are covered head to toe in tattoos. Maybe he's gotten a couple since since I last saw him or whatever. But I would tend to think if you're going to be like that, that you need to have at least some business tattoos probably just because. I'd be a little bit worried about people immediately rushing to judgment, and maybe that's just my own insecurities about that. But I don't know. Emery, Emery makes it work though, and you know, more power to you if you can get that to work. Emery's gonna get dead and then lift on his two thighs, so he's ripping. Oh, weight. that's good. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But I can see him doing that. You got to get it backwards so that when you look in the mirror, you can you can see it, yep. and it's just telling you the exact lift that you're doing. That makes total sense. 
nothing wrong with that plan at all. And I'm sure when you're 75 years old, you're gonna love that too. Um, this sounds like I'm crapping on tattoos. I'm really not, I promise I'm not. Uh, we got one from bearded underscore Seth on Twitter. I have three, one old school, Tupac style across my shoulder. Love that. And one on each calf. Oh, he's the one that's got one on each calf, my bad. Um, scripture means a, a lot to me. That's my criteria. Something has to mean enough to me to make it permanent. There's nothing but faith that meets my criteria. Perfectly understandable approach. Perfectly understandable. And I think a lot of people fall into that camp as well. Or if you want to honor a loved one, I, I totally get that. And being being moved by by words like that to make that a, a part of you. I mean, true, a physical part of you. Like, yeah, no problem with that whatsoever. Um, we've got one last one here. This is from at Pops095. That Twitter handle is taken, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> he says, I'm nearing 40 and unmarked. I just can't think of anything I want on my body forever. However, if UGA manages to win a title before I'm dead, oh man, this guy's only 40 and he's saying that, I may just have to get a tattoo to commemorate that. The old Rick Pitino approach. Yep. Win a championship, get a tattoo. Careful to just, you know, to make sure that we're <laughs> Allegedly. what elements, what elements of Rick Pitino's life we're talking about, and not the other lives of Rick Pitino or other, yeah, I guess other lives that still sort of works with. Did that. the NCAA make Rick Pitino cover that tattoo? <laughs> if they didn't, they made him. He's not allowed to address people in person with that showing. That's a violation. Ole Miss actually gets a year of probation added on every time he does that. Every time Rick Pitino goes out in public with his tattoo, they just slam Ole Miss again. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, you've got like people taking, you got like Kentucky photographers taking pictures of Rick Pitino at the beach. That's too much. Nobody needs that image in their head right now. Never, ever, 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 ever do the premature title tattoo. Don't do it. You're gonna go viral. Cool, great, awesome. But you're gonna hate it every single time that you see that. Maybe I, I don't know. Maybe you laugh at it, but I just think that that's a that's a tough look. And then you have that awkward conversation, especially if it's really visible. And then you have that person who sees it for the first time and is like, "Wait a minute, Kentucky did not win a national title in basketball in 2019. What what are you doing?" And then you have to walk that back. Just not worth it. It's just not worth it. They say with with art. Art is valued so high because it should make you feel good whenever you look at it. And if looking at a tattoo or something like that makes you feel like crap, it kind of does the exact opposite. Will, you didn't get a tattoo when LSU won it all in 2019. You were probably too young when the Saints... How old were you when the Saints won it all? Man, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> 14. Wait a minute. 14. Okay, that, okay, that was going to be my guess. That was going to be my guess. I was trying to do some quick math on the fly. It did not work out. Bookmark about, this, though. Bookmark this, though, because I have a St. Super Bowl story for another time. Okay. Would you get a tattoo if the Pelicans won it all with Zion in, oh, like, gosh. 2024? Would that be the, I'm, I'm doing this, it's happening, I've suffered long enough, I need to make this a, a, a landmark occasion in my life? No, but I'll tell you why. See, this is why me starting late was a bad decision. Because tattoo, like, number five, I might actually consider that. Tattoo number, like, one or two, probably a bad move. Why do you say that? 
Well, because so if you already have your meaningful tattoos, then you can go sports championships. But if all you have is a New Orleans Pelicans ring on you, then you look kind of sketch, in my opinion. You, you would have to get the tattoo that shows with the tank jersey as well. Right. Like the tank style that you're not going to wear with a t-shirt underneath. You need to show, tr that's the way to show true fandom, is to be able to show, I rooted for this NBA team and here is how I honored that. Listen, Georgia fans, y'all want to go and get yourself a tattoo because you haven't won one since 1980. By, by any means, do what you got to do. That is... That is a championship tattoo that I think you could probably talk your significant other into, no matter who you are. Emery's already probably got that appointment lined up. Who are we kidding? Emery Picker is getting himself a Georgia tattoo if and when that day comes. I think there are a lot of people who would be in that spot. But I always, I told myself when I was younger, I said if the Cubs win a World Series, I'm going to get that tattoo. And then for whatever reason, that just kind of like came and went. And I thought about it a little bit more. And I'm like, eh, you know, everybody kind of knows about that. Maybe... <laughs> It was on the news. <laughs> it was on the news. People are on Twitter now. How close did you come there? Because I was about to say, that seems like one that, you know, could almost happen. I know a lot of people that did. I know a lot of people that did. And I, I think you have to, tr that can't just be a fantasy in your mind. You have to already have done the research. You have to have already looked into the tattoo place that you're going to go to because beginning that process afterwards is a little bit too daunting. There was one time when I was a kid I think, or no, I, was, I wasn't a kid. How old was I? I was probably like, maybe like early 20s, where I woke up from a dream and I had a tattoo on my leg. Or I thought I had a tattoo on my leg. I dreamt it, the entire thing, but it felt so real. And then I woke up and I was so relieved that I didn't have this tattoo on my leg. And it was a Cubs tattoo or something like that, which would have been perfectly fine. But I don't know, that feeling of regretting it stood out to me. And if I had thought about it, it was premeditated, I wouldn't regret it. But I don't know why. Maybe that's just been sticking with me too long. So if anybody has any great tattoo stories, something like that, go share it in the Facebook group, Saturday Down South Podcast on Facebook. If you have not before, leave us a five-star review. Go do that. Go on to iTunes, wherever you leave reviews. Five-star review, subscribe, tell everybody about it. If you haven't done anything nice for someone today, just go tell somebody, hey, you know what brought me some joy today? Listen to the Saturday Down South podcast. If you have not already, go subscribe to our newsletter. Go subscribe to the College Football Uncensored podcast, the newest podcast from Saturday Down South. Go do that wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure that you're following us on all forms of social media. As I said, we're going to have so much great content coming down the pipeline on SaturdayDownSouth.com. Will's got a couple ideas in the holster for figuring it out here. So I'm just saying, be excited for it, people. Like, yes, a lot of stuff coming. Enjoy the spring games this weekend. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.